Pipeful and Crossroads is your show all about nonprofits and the people that make the mission happen. I'm Marjorie Moore, the Executive Director of Mind's Eye, and my personal mission is to make nonprofits stronger by identifying and fixing the rubs that so often come, that come up between people and the mission. And my fabulous co-host, Natalie Jablonski, the Nonprofit Ninja, is here. Thank you. Specializing in helping nonprofits maximize their time, talent, and resources to achieve organizational greatness, of course. Absolutely. And Welcome. today is so exciting for me. It is because I love having a guest. It's really, it's a lot. Of, well, I mean, I have fun with you, but I have more fun when we have a guest. I see, I see we, how the love is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love being together, but we also love sharing the love and exactly. we have a guest today. So, uh, today's guest is going to help us really get some enlightenment, I believe, because we all know it's coming. It's the Department of Labor Fair Labor Standards Act. It's scheduled to go into effect December 1st of this year, December 1st, 2016. It's coming. Um, and we know that FLSA applies to all organizations. But will it impact nonprofit organizations yeah. differently? I'm not really sure. It's something that I know you and I have been talking about, Marjorie. Talk on, about a lot. On, and, and we get asked <laughs> a lot uh, when we go to stop and get coffee places. So we have people who ask us. So we really recognize a lot of nonprofits don't have an internal human resource office. They may I not don't. even have a human resource specialist <laughs> on staff or on their board to help them manage compliance with the FLSA. So we thought we might offer some expert perspective uh, to be help narrow, narrow this down, break it down for us, explain to we what need, we need to do. So I'm excited because Karen Milner is here today. She is with the Lauenbaum Law out of St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Karen. Thank you very much. Uh, Karen, why don't you uh, begin by just telling us a little about yourself? Okay. Well, I, I am an attorney in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I work for Lauenbaum Law, and I've been practicing law for about 30 years. And even though I was, you know, Born in 1970. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, I've been practicing law for about 30 years. You do no background checks here, Karen. You're <laughs> safe. Okay. Uh, for about 30 years, and I specialize in all aspects of employment law from the employer side. And one of my specific areas of specialty is the Fair Labor Standards Act and the exemptions available under the Fair Labor Standards Act and um, really who the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to, and we can help empl- out of our office, we can help employers with all aspects of the compliance, make sure that you're doing exactly what you need to do with each employee. And as you mentioned, there are significant, significant changes that are coming on December, being effective December 1st, 2016, and we're going to talk about those. Awesome. So what I heard you say is we have the expert in-house. I, yes. I love that because <laughs> we don't have that often, and mm-hmm. we usually try to supplement with board members as nonprofits mm-hmm. or or who do we know. And uh, I always feel bad for HR professionals at events because I feel like uh, nonprofit people hound them to try to get free information. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm always happy so to help. So thank you. Thanks for being here. So um, first and foremost, the question that Marjorie and I get asked all the time, does these changes that have that they're coming, uh-huh. does it apply to us? Does it apply to nonprofits? Should we be making changes if we're not already? Um, yes. And that's one thing, uh, sort of a common misconception that people have is that the Fair Labor Standards Act regulations don't apply to nonprofits. I've heard that quite a bit. And the thing that you have to remember is nonprofit, profit, either way, either way you slice it, the Fair Labor Standards Act regulations Before and now, there's no change to that. This has been this way since 1938. 
and I wasn't born then. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the you either an entity is either going to be covered as an enterprise, or if the enterprise itself isn't covered, then individual employees can be covered. For an enterprise to be covered, it simply has to have a gross annual dollar volume of sales of five hundred thousand dollars or more. And when you're talking about a nonprofit. It might not be a store, but they may have um, they may have adoption centers for dogs. They may have fundraisers. They may have um, stores where they sell things in order to raise funds. And essentially, for the most part, if the, they're generating revenue of at least five hundred thousand um, dollars, all the employees are going to be protected by the FLSA. But if anyone has very specific questions, if they think they might not fall in that bucket or have specific questions about how the fi- where the five hundred thousand dollars comes from feel free to contact us feel free to contact your hr um, professional who really is um, into the fair labor standards act and then mm-hmm. aside from enterprise coverage even if the enterprise isn't covered if the employees of the enterprise are engaged in interstate commerce, then they're covered by the FLSA and entitled to its protections. And those are really, really simple things. If the employee makes out-of-state phone calls, if the employee um, uses email, sends and receives things through the interstate mail. So pretty much everybody. Uh, pretty, mu- pretty much everybody. Credit card handles yeah. credit card transactions. Right. So all that's going to be considered interstate. And if the, um, employees of the nonprofit are doing that, then they're going to be covered as well. So just real quickly, it can apply to um, nonprofits, and they really do need to make sure that they're compliant and check with their HR person or their employment lawyer. And there are very, very limited exceptions. One of the words that you uh, used a couple times in there, and I like it a lot, it's uh, protection. You kept mm-hmm. saying, you know, for the employee's protection and, and for the employee's benefit. And I think sometimes when I've heard uh, an engaged in conversation with nonprofits about some of these changes, uh, especially the frontline nonprofit employees are like, I haven't been an hourly employee in over 30 years of my career. And now all of a sudden, my employer this nonprofit, how dare they, are changing me to hourly. And I'm like, no, no, it's not just them. It's it's changing because of some of these changes. And they're they're almost taking it like they're being punished. But really, this is not a punishment for them. This is a reward for them to make sure they're getting good work-life balance, right. too, right? And, and that was one of the goals, really, of if you read the regulations, which no one wants to do, but one of the, <laughs> one of the goals... Which is why we have Karen. <laughs> but one of the goals was to make sure that people get paid more. So the um, annual, you know, the, the weekly salary requirement for many, many years was $455 in order to fall on, to meet the salary level requirement to fall under one of the exemptions. Now it's going to 913 per week. So if an employee is under that, they're going to be getting time. They need to get time and a half for each hour worked over 40 hours. And employees quite often when they see they're going from a salaried employee to an hourly employee, they feel Mm -hmm. like they're less important and actually cry sometimes, you know, when we've been through wage and hour investigations. (laughs) Um, But really this will benefit them because they're going to end up getting more money in the, at the end of the day. Right. There's a lot of prestige in being a salaried employee, I think, and not having to punch the clock. And I think sometimes people feel like that having to punch the clock is, you're kind of being treated like a little kid, but really it, it really does protect us and keep us from, 
you know, being underpaid. Right. From right. a dollars and cents perspective, they're going to end up with more money in their pocket, even though they may say, oh, I'm hourly now and I, I feel less important. Right. So, yeah. I think I think the, my colleagues have been trying it out, you might say, because it doesn't go into effect till December 1st. So we've been practicing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they found is the flexibility of their schedule. They've been able to do more uh, than they were before. Um, perhaps because they felt almost guilty of, I hate to stop and get groceries in the middle of the day because technically the office is open. So I feel like this is more office time, Mm -hmm. but the reality is they put in hours already and they need to be flexing some of that off because they're not going to go over their 40 hours for the week. Right. So they're like, this is so cool. Do you know last week I went to the grocery store at two o'clock in the afternoon. There was nobody there. I got in (laughs) and out and I was home in time with my kids and but where before I think we're nonprofit uh, guilt sinks in. They felt like they had to be working. They felt like they had to be yeah. working, even though they were working in the evening or working on a Saturday or working because the the salary doesn't define you, you know, when you're right. exempt. And I think that's been a big change of the emotional culture of the individuals as well. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who is exempt. So okay. what, what categories of employees Still get to be exempt, and we'll talk about the money later, but okay. what type of people do we Okay, have? so the there are many, actually the Fair Labor Standards Act has a myriad, just a huge number of different kinds of exemptions that a lot of employers use. Some of them have to do with certain television and radio stations for car dealerships, the salesmen, um, the mechanics. There are just a whole lot of different ones out there, but... The three most commonly used, the ones that we're going to talk about mostly, are what we call the white-collar exemptions. Those are the three most commonly used exemptions. They are the executive employee exemption, professional employee exemption, and administrative employee exemption. And do you want me to tell you a little bit about yeah, what their job duties are? I, I think are. our employees would be, or our listeners would be interested in yeah. it because if you haven't heard about this yet from your employer and you work for a nonprofit, mm-hmm. then I would suggest after listening today that you go back and you talk to your manager or your supervisor mm-hmm. and ask them, say, Hey, I heard about this awesome show, uh, and, <laughs> and with a phenomenal speaker and she was talking about this. So. Uh, help them understand a little more about what that looks like. Okay. And these are the duties test for these three exemptions have not changed in any way at all. Okay. So for an executive employee, their primary duty has to be management of the enterprise or of a department or subdivision. And the employee has to basically customarily and regularly direct the work of two or more full-time employees or that equivalent, the equivalent of 80 hours a week. They have to have authority to hire and fire and things like that. So a lot, while you hear the name executive employee and you think somebody who's walking around with a, you know, a three-piece suit and tie, it isn't necessarily that. For example, if there's a person who's the general manager of a gas station and perhaps doesn't even have an advanced degree of any kind, if he's the one who's really in charge of running that place and sets everyone's schedule and there's four or five you know, employees working there, he could fall under the executive employee exemption, even though you typically may think, oh, it's someone you know higher up in the company. You, Not- said, that you said equivalent as well, 2.5 or equivalent to 2.5? Two full-time equivalents. Or two full-time equivalents. So, so- so if, what about like volunteers? I can see for a nonprofit saying, well, I manage 40 volunteers. Is yeah, that- and the, the regulations are quite clear that volunteers don't count That's as good. employees. That's yeah. good to know for yeah. the sake of our listeners, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And then the um, other one is the administrative employee exemption, which is not really commonly used. It's kind of a quirky exemption, and there are a lot of different... Um, Leave it to the government in- for quirky interpre- exemptions. Yeah. <laughs> 
Their primary duty has to be office or non-manual work. Primary duty has to include the exercise of discretion and independent judgment with respect to matters of significance. Normally, it's going to be things like tax, finance, if you have a, uh, accounting, budgeting, human, your human resources professional, legal and regulatory compliance and things like that. But they really have to have authority to make decisions with regard to matters of significance. They can't just be using a guidebook or something like that in order to make their decisions. They have to be able to make decisions on their own. And then the last um, um, white-collar exemption is the professional employee, and that one is really the easiest one to kind of point out. Learned professionals are people who really have an advanced degree. It's going to be your doctors, your lawyers, your registered nurses, teachers, um, engineers, people who have... um, have really acquired an advanced knowledge in a field of science or learning that's customarily acquired by a prolonged course of intellectual instruction. And then there is the artistic professional exemption. We don't ever see (laughs) very much of those, but those are people who work in a field that requires invention, imagination, talent, and things like that. They're just not really used that much. But those three, the professional, administrative, and executive, are the three white-collar exemptions, and those are the three that are affected by this new change in the rule. I know a lot of people are concerned about, um, you know, especially in organizations where they have case managers or they're, you know, you're on call all the time. Is somebody like a social worker covered under this so they've got the advanced degree? or Degre- Yeah, degreed social workers who are working in their field, who mm-hmm. are working as social workers, typically are going to qualify under the professional employee exemption. Okay. So if they're qualified, what does that mean? Does that mean that they can be exempt? If they can be exempt, if... You're, if they're going to meet the new salary requirements right now, as I mentioned, oh. that weekly salary requirement has been $455 a week for a long time. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly how long, but that's what the final rule changes. So that's where the big change that's comes in. That's our big change. That's so once the, you figure out kind of where you fit on the wheel of exemptions, then the question becomes, are you going, then the or, the question for the organization is, are you going to increase that person's weekly salary to the degree necessary on December 1st, 2016 to maintain that exemption? The point being, if Even if someone does fall with regard to their job duties, if they fall under the professional administrative or executive employee exemption, they have to still receive a salary and it must be at the level required by the regulations. So effective January, I'm sorry, December 1st, 2016. As long as they meet the, one of the job duties tests, that weekly salary is going to be $913 a week as opposed to 455 So you, you, you can't say, oh, you meet the job duties tests as an administrative employer or professional, but I'm only going to pay you $600 a week mm-hmm. as, and there are very limited exceptions for lawyers, doctors, Lawyers and doctors, and I think one other, but um, you probably so, won't see a lot of those in nonprofit management. No, anyway. no, 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 no. So the in the other piece of the change in regulations is under the old regulations, you couldn't include bonus pay in order to make up part of that 455. It had to be 455. The relief, little bit of relief, the regulations provide is to meet that 913 a week. You can pay your exempt employee 822 a week and then pay them a 
non-discretionary bonus that has to be paid at least quarterly based on whatever criteria you have. Productivity, profitability, some set factors that you're using to determine the bonus. And as long as that's paid at least quarterly and when you go back and add it over the prior quarter, they're up to at least 913 a week. It's fine. They can keep their exemption. So if you get to the end of that quarter and you say, oh, uh, well, Susie, sorry, you didn't do such a good job. Your productivity was not really good enough. And here's your hundred dollar bonus. Well, if she did work overtime, if she worked over 40 hours during some of those weeks and you're not her productivity bonus is insufficient, she's going to be due overtime for any overtime hours worked. But the saving grace for the employer, once again, is that the regulations allow the employer, if, if Susie didn't make the required amount of bonus based on her productivity or whatever the criteria were, you can make a catch-up payment, a one-time catch-up payment. Because if you look back at that quarter and you say, oh, my goodness, Susie was working 50 hours a week. I don't want to have to pay all that overtime. You can increase that bonus amount as long as it's paid the first payday after the end of that quarter. Okay. So It also sounds like you might have to have a... Um employee engagement talk with. Yeah. But, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if her productivity wasn't yeah. up to par yeah, to get to that. much. Yeah. Yes, yes. So we need to talk about time management yeah. or we need to talk about productivity management, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And the important thing to remember if you're going to use bo- the non-discretionary bonuses is that their weekly salary still has to be $822 a week during that quarter because you can only use 10% is bonus pay in order to make up the difference to get up to that 913. So now, so this, this is a, a pretty big chunk from, from 400 and some dollars a week to 900 and some. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been at this, you know, this 400 some number for a long time as we talked about. It's kind of scary to think like, are we going to wait another 20 years and, and jump another $900 or just, is there a plan in place? Right. There, there actually is a plan in place. It, and which is good, um, because we lived so long with the $455 per week and no one during, you know, for year, no one said, Hey, this is going to go up next year. This is going to go up next year. But it, we did have some advance notice that, that this was going to come. However, it, to think about it, it's it more than doubled, you know, mm-hmm. in one fell swoop, it, it, it more than doubled, right. which is a huge amount. The good thing is beginning now, every three years, starting with January 1st, 2020, the standard salary level and annual compensation is going to be automatically updated. And the other good thing about it is we will have advanced notice because the wage and hour division will publish in the federal register as it did these proposed rules last year, but at least 150 days before the effective date, we'll have that published in the federal register. So at least we'll know what it's going to be. Um, and, you know, sometimes people ask, where did this number come from? Where did the Department of Labor get yeah, this number? I can it, ask that often. So I'm yeah. curious. Well, it's actually in the regulations. Again, no one wants to read them, but oh. <laughs> um, the, they say that the Department of Labor says that that, amount is equal to the 40th percentile of weekly earnings of full-time salaried workers generally in the lowest wage census region, which is the South. Mm -hmm. That's where they say they got the number from. Mm -hmm. So seems fair. 
So now this is scheduled to go into effect December 1st. I know that there was some uh, some information that was coming out of Congress right before they went on break that they're proposing to push back the start date. I know the Senate didn't sign off on it yet. The, you know, the House said, please let us do this. The Senate has to come back in in November and make a decision on whether that's going to be a priority. So I hear people gambling. They're like, oh, we'll gamble and hold on. What is your what is your recommendation for that? Um, my I truly believe that there is not going to be any change. I truly believe that these regulations are going to take effect as written December 1st, 2016. Um, and a lot of people, you know, are, are just hearing about these things now. But we've known about, you know, there were the proposed regulations. There was a 90-day period that you could submit comments. Of course, we did submit comments saying, this is much too high, <laughs> much too large of, a, of an increase. It was a um, bigger amount, I think. When yeah, it it, with the proposed regulations, the weekly salary would have been $927. So, see, look at how nice they were yeah, to make it go down. Look at there. What a break. Uh, so, we a lot of people submitted comments. I believe they had more than 30,000 um, comments, you know, written in and submitted. Um, so they brought it down to the 913. But in answer to your question, I do believe it's going to go into effect December 1st, 2016. And then also, so everyone is aware, um, there have been lawsuits filed also to block this. There was, excuse me, a lawsuit filed by 21 states. Um, the lawsuits filed in Texas, um, in one of the federal district courts in Texas. And again, the argument is, Basic argument, as I understand it, is that President Obama overstepped his authority in issuing the regulations, but really the Department of Labor issued the regulations. So I, I believe I have every reason to believe they will take effect December 1st, 2016. Again, even though a lot of people are finding out about it now and it seems like a recent thing, it really isn't. It really has been brewing for, you know, quite right. a long period of time. It and I, like- I think part of that is just because people like do the ostrich theory. I'm going to keep my head in the sand and hope it goes away. And it's Maybe. not. And here it is. And it's not only is it coming, but it's coming quickly. Yeah. Now, now it seems quickly. Yeah. We and can- it sounds like a lot of the things that people are thinking are changes are things that maybe they didn't realize before. And it seems like a lot of people right. are just brushing up their employee handbooks because the dollar value is changing. So it seems like, well, we better look at everything now. Right. And it's really actually a good idea to make sure that you look at your job descriptions, especially for people that you have, for your people who you have classified as non-exempt who are receiving an hourly rate wage. It's always okay to pay a person from a wage and hour perspective. It's always okay to pay a person on an hourly basis in time and a half after 40 hours. There's never a problem, even if the person otherwise could be classified as exempt. No issue. The only issue the only place you're going to have a problem when the wage and hour division comes in or an employee files a lawsuit is if you have the person classified as exempt when they're not really properly classified Mm -hmm. that way, that's when you're going to have a problem because you're going to have the overtime pay issue. So now what are some of the, the, what could happen if we do this wrong? If we don't pay the employees enough under the new law or if we have somebody misclassified, what could happen to us? Oh, that's a good question. That's a great question. what, there are two ways that a person can, if I'm an employee there or the employer, there are really two ways that an FLSA issue can come up and the employer can be faced with liability. The first is that the employee can go to the wage, U.S. Department of Labor wage and hour division. A wage and hour division investigator will, for example, if the person said, um, I'm 
uh, secretary or I'm a receptionist. I'm, I'm in some sort of position that is clearly a non-exempt um, position and my employer is paying me a salary of X or perhaps the employer is not up to the 913, whatever the case may be. There's some wage and hour violation. The wage and hour division investigator then will get the information from the employee, come out and talk to the employer, look through the employer's records, and that um, investigation won't be isolated to just that employee. It will be the uh, investigator will look at the employer's entire payroll, and they'll go back for a two-year period. There's a two-year statute of limitations for non-willful violations, a three-year statute of limitations for willful violations, violations and you're actually the employer is actually better off in a way if the wage and hour division comes out and does the investigation because the investigator is only normally going to require the employer to repay any employee for any um, overtime that wasn't paid to them or if they for example if the employer did automatic deducts for lunch periods and the person wasn't relieved of all duties they should have been paid for that lunch hour the wage and hour division investigator is only going to have the employer pay the back wages to the employees affected so that's the good scenario Mm -hmm. the bad scenario is when an employee Instead, the guy decides to go to an attorney, um, and the attorneys typically are going to say, well, I think that we have a class action here. We have this whole group of employees that oh, didn't, wow. you know, didn't get their paid lunch, their, uh, they had their lunch periods interrupted, or they didn't get overtime, whatever the violation happened to be. And so the reason why that's actually worse is because in addition to the back pay that a court would award if Say there were people who weren't, didn't get their time and a half after 40, just as an example. Mm-hmm. The court's going to use the same statute of limitations and go back two years for a non-willful violation or three years for a willful violation. But in addition to those damages or that back pay, under the statute itself, the plaintiff is automatically entitled to the same amount as liquidated damages. So if my back pay were $1,500. I'm automatically also entitled to another $1,500 as liquidated damages. And then to make matters worse, if, if there's any FLSA violation at all that existed, the plaintiff is also entitled to their attorney's fees and costs or the plaintiff's lawyer is entitled to. <laughs> to their attorney's fees and costs, I guess. So that's the, you know, the worst case scenario is if you have a, a lawyer that gets a hold of one of these cases. Wow. So you so want to make sure that you so call I, your I, employment lawyer. I think we should probably do it. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely sounds cheaper to pay your employees right in the first place. That's right. Well, and it's great for, you know, I, for our colleagues that are out there and we're there, they are feeling a little bit like, oh, I'm going from salary to hourly and it's that status that, that piece. Remember, this is all about making sure that you get what you deserve. Yeah. And a really a good, um, a good way to put that to people is, and we've had some clients who've done this is to give those individual employees, for example, if they, if they have a sheet, say last year's salary was $38,000 and they typically worked, I, I'm just making a number up 45 hours a week to go ahead and and draw up a sheet a sheet of paper on which you show that employee that if they work their regular 40 hours or, or plus the overtime hours at time and a half that at the end of the year they're going to end up with that same final salary amount that they got last year that $38,000 and we do have clients that are giving sheets to their store managers in you know retail where they're not going to increase the pay Mm-hmm. Up to the 913. So the employees who are being converted from salary to hourly can see 
at the end of the day, I'm still going to be getting my $38,000 just like I got last year. Mm -hmm. And I find that's probably helpful for them. I think that's the thing that all employees want to know is, you know, am I getting what's owed to me? Am I getting what we agreed on in the first place? And I think, you know, that's really important to people. It's important to me. It's important to me. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's important as executives to make sure that we're taking care of our people. And I think that's what a lot of this is about as well. So, and it's hard as nonprofit because you don't have those specialty departments you can go to the big HR office or, you know, your attorneys Mm -hmm. that are on retainer that can just help you put this all together. So a lot of us are doing it on our own Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make sure we do it right because obviously we've heard (laughs) what can happen if we don't. So it's a little scary. So Natalie, what'd you learn today? Oh, I learned that I'm really glad that I took it serious when I heard about it the first time because I heard some nonprofits who didn't go there. Um, but I think my big aha is to go back and look at the job descriptions. You know, I've been making a lot of the upfront changes and making sure that, you know, people are getting familiar with doing a timesheet and getting them into hourly status. But I didn't think about the tying it back to the job description and making sure that the do- job description job description reflects the change as well. So mm-hmm. from exempt to non-exempt and making sure that that change is on there. And and if there is anyone that you're going to go ahead and increase to the 913 a week based on your assumption that they are exempt, you still may want to have someone, to, an HR professional, employment attorney, take a look at the job descriptions to make sure that the duties the person is performing, in fact, do qualify that person for exempt status. It's really important. That's, that's a great point. Marjorie, what about you? What was your big aha today? I think the thing that just really... Surprise, I guess maybe not surprise me, but like really, we, I think we've got it cemented now is, is pretty much everybody is affected by this in yeah, some way, shape or form. Uh, because I've been around a lot of really smart people who I respect a lot who, who have just sworn up and down that, oh no, nonprofits, we don't have to follow this or, you know, oh, we, you know, I've got, we've got this, this and this. And so we don't have to do it. I'm really glad that, you know, we have to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, there, and there are very, very limited exceptions. Mm-hmm. There are some nonprofits that may be really, really small. Less than that $500,000 revenue and some other exemptions, which if they think yeah. they are, then I would say the, the aha you should get out there is you should be checking with somebody and uh, not necessarily sure. the barista yeah. at the coffee shop. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing is, yeah, I find somebody who, you know, an attorney like Karen, you know, somebody who specializes in this in not just, you know, your, the attorney that you guys are really good friends with who does the wills for a lot of your volunteers that, that they're not going to have the level of expertise. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if you're listening to this and you're thinking there's, there's more, you're right. There is so much more to this uh, pages upon pages to learn and to grow. And uh, if you would be interested in learning more, I have great news because not only is Karen a phenomenal guest, but she's a phenomenal speaker and she's going to be featured at an upcoming event, uh, which is entitled is more overtime pay coming your way. Uh, is sponsored by Brown Smith Wallace, and that'll be taking place on Tuesday, November 15th. And uh, doors will open at 7.15 a.m. There'll be a continental breakfast, a great presentation, lots of notes and things you can learn. Uh, it'll be taking place in St. Louis, Missouri. So if you'd like to know more information, we'll have the information in our show notes. We'll also have it on our Facebook page at 501 Crossroads. Uh, but by all means, uh, you can look this up on Brown Smith Wallace. Uh, their website uh, will be available. Um, and I know that we quote them all the time because they're a great resource for the greater St. Louis community. So uh, Karen will be speaking and giving you lots more detail and more information. So feel free to take a look at that. Plus there's a one CPE credit available if you qualify. So you'll want to learn more about that as well. Absolutely. And Karen, if our listeners want to contact you for more help, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, my uh, work phone number, 
1-800-242-4820. Or my email address is kmilner, M-I-L-N-E-R, at lowenbaumlaw.com. Excellent. Fantastic. We'll make sure that information's in the show notes as well so that all of you will have that available. What a great time. Karen, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so no much. No problem. It's sometimes it hard to choke down something as tough as listening to the legal mumbo jumbo, as my non-legal <laughs> friends like to call it. But that legal mumbo jumbo keeps us out of the legal trouble. So mm-hmm. uh, it's good to know and great to great to have information. Thanks for being no here No problem. Today. It's important that everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> And thank you to all of you for joining us on 501 Crossroads. We record at the studios of Mind's Eye Radio, and, is, and the show is produced and hosted by me, Marjorie Moore. And me, Natalie Jablonski. Mike Curtis is our sound engineer. Please go to iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite app, and subscribe and leave us some, leave us some feedback so everybody else can find us. Um, you can find us on Facebook at 501 Crossroads. Thank you for listening. And remember, we're all looking to, working towards the same outcomes. <laughs>